Well, here we are again. Uh, this time we're going to be talking about the Gulf War did not take place. So I want to preface this one by saying a number of things, but I'll make it, keep it quick. Um, in, in, in no way does Baudrillard assume that people did not die in this war, that the war did not actually take place, but rather he's drawing attention to the fact that this war had much more of a presence in the media spheres than it did in quote-unquote real life, whatever that looked like. And there's a moment that kind of exemplifies this, and it's not one that Baudrillard picks up on, up on but it's one that uh, Paul Patton picks up on, where he recounts a moment where CNN commentators or interviewers, journalists, were in Iraq, and they were speaking to some soldiers, asking them what was going on in the front lines here, and they said, we don't know, we're waiting for, waiting to find out on CNN. So this is a pretty classic kind of Baudrillardian moment where the distinction between what is happening in real life and what is happening in the you know, the mass media spheres is hardly distinguishable. In fact, these two things seem to blend together to the point that one cannot necessarily be discerned from the other. So this book begins uh, with the sentiment that the Gulf War will not take place. Okay, so when he writes this, he's thinking about war in terms of how it has been historically manifest, or how it has ma manifested itself itself historically, oh my god. So for him, right off the bat, in the media sphere, at least following the Vietnam War, it would seem as though impossible that a war like this could be under, could, could occur. So he says, starting out, from the beginning, we knew that this war would never happen. After the hot war, the violence of conflict, after the cold war, the balance of terror, here comes the dead war, the unfrozen cold war, which leaves us to grapple with the corpse of war and the necessity of dealing with this de decomposing corpse which nobody from the Gulf has managed to revive. America, Saddam Hussein and the Gulf powers are fighting over the corpse of war. So this is a, a pretty important kind of Baudrillardian idea and it comes out in some of his other texts where this might correspond to what we'd understand as a strategy. So we mobilize war in such a way so as to convince ourselves that war has not disappeared. So in order to do this, we display it in hyper-real fashion for everyone to see, therefore making the ability to question the reality of war or war, or to suggest that this war is any different than it has been historically would be absurd where people can just brush you off, hence the amount of criticism Baudrillard's gotten for this piece uh, from thinkers like Doug Douglas Kellner, a pretty avid Baudrillard scholar, uh, someone who who has written that you know Baudrillard doesn't recognize the way that real things happen, uh, or um, what's his name? It's, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's Stefan, it might be pronounced Stefan Mastrovich. Um, I think he's in Texas. He's um, He wrote a book called The Barbarian Temperament that deals specifically with Baudrillard's account of war. Well, not specifically, but a good good amount of it, where he says that Baudrillard, by de being too focused in the way that war is a simulated event, fails to recognize that war as it manifests itself today is an extension of the old kind of barbarian habits 
that predominated life for a very long time, or at least this is his theory, and that Baudrillard is simply some neo-Kantian focused on these, um, I guess, inconsequential debates around the reality of war. So this text is not, and I want to really make this clear, is not Baudrillard saying that the war didn't actually happen. Of course it happened. But he wants to call the question to two things broadly. Number one, that we could, can't consider this to be a war. Number two, that its relationship or that its um, affinity with the mass media calls into question its validity as something as a, as a territorial thing, as something that actually has a space. So when Baudrillard it says the Gulf War did not take place, I think he means it kind of literally in that it didn't have a place. The Gulf War didn't exist in a place. It existed in a media sphere. So to continue on through the text, um, in considering his distinction between cold war and hot war in the previous passage that I mentioned, he locates the hot war with World War II, and then the cold war with, as we might understand, you know, the, the cold war or the, the missile crisis or whatever. So this concept of war, at least the idea of the Gulf War, can't occur. So the, and he, the reason he's able to say this is from some of his earlier arguments and earlier texts pertaining to impossible exchange. Now, we actually haven't gotten to that book yet here on this, on this channel, and it follows um, the Gulf War did not take place. But in Fatal Strategies, he puts forth this idea that in the, I guess, contemporary kind of metaphysical struggle of life, he locates humans becoming um, correlative with, with hostages. So he says this because taking into account the, you know, how people, how nations have amassed nuclear weapons to such an extent that the entire face of the planet could be wiped off at the push of a button, Baudrillard calls into question quite poignantly how little autonomy people have, how little wiggle room people have to engage in any real kind of political endeavors. Rather, he says that we are, you know, made to be hostages to these to these national systems that have the power to eradicate us at a moment's notice. So what he says about the Gulf War in relation to this is that non-war is characterized by that degenerate form of war which includes hostage manipulation and negotiation. Hostages and blackmail are the purest products of deterrence. The hostage has taken the place of the warrior. He has become the principal actor, the simulacral protagonist, or rather in his pure inaction the pro protagonizer of non-war. So the reason for that, or at least the idea is that because we have entered a phase where we have become hostages, at least according to Baudrillard, it calls into question and challenges this idea of traditional war, which dealt with this idea of warriors or, or greatness. If, if I'm going to um, take from, borrow from Arendt for a second, thinking about Achilles, and instead you have people that are totally without autonomy in these instances. Now, this can be, I think that this can be said of a certain number of wars or of a number of wars, especially Vietnam, and why Baudrillard focuses on the Gulf War. We might just say because the, um, the, the way that technology has developed up to this point, it, it really marks a, a crucial shift in how war has been traditionally depicted. But I think the same could certainly apply to like Vietnam 
where it was a war not worth conducting. It was a war that was it, it was simply an absurd war. Whereas in like World War II, perhaps someone could mount the argument that there was a reason for it. But no, for us today, as he makes clear, we are all hostages of media intoxication, induced to believe in the war, just as we were once led to believe in the revolution in Romania, and confined to the simulacrum of war as though confined to quarters. Because we are not expected at any moment to challenge the conception or the notion of war appearing to us on the television, because that we conceive of television as being the, um, I guess, the universal neutralizer, or that thing that is supposed to present images as they appear in real life. But of course, knowing Baudrillard, he's going to call attention to that, or he has throughout all his other works up to this point, so I won't really go into that. But because of that, or at least because of our willing acceptance of what appears on the television, we are, for him, uh, hostages in that way as well. Now here we arrive at one of Baudrillard's more difficult claims to swallow, notably that um, the Gulf War, if it was counted on the Richter scale, would not reach a two or a three. The buildup is unreal, as though the fiction of an earthquake were created by manipulating the measuring instruments. It is neither the strong form nor the degree zero of war, but the weak statistical degree, the asympto asymptotic form my god, asymptotic form which allows a brush with war but no encounter, the tra transparent degree which allows war to be seen from the depths of a dark room. So it's clear here that we can, you know, understand some of the critiques leveled against him that he disavows the real suffering that people have gone through in war, but I want to read another passage that kind of, you know, is a means to kind of curb that criticism right off the bat which is that he says he is absolutely cognizant of the fact that there are 100,000 dead Iraqis at the end of this war, or that pile up during this war. So for him, that just emphasizes his point, where some people take that to mean that Baudrillard doesn't care about dead Iraqis. Actually, I think that it does um, further his point, be, at least for him, because it points to an absurdity, kind of an odd manifestation of war where it seems as though only one side suffers casualties while the other is left almost untouched. So for him, that's that's not what a war is. It resembles more of an invasion, more of an, an assault, more of an imperialistic struggle. So this really chimes in well, or at least this resonates well with his earlier theses in simulacra and simulation, especially when he's considering the role of the United States in globalizing the world, in a sense, or in being a, you know, a purveyor of neo-imperialistic efforts in the hopes of rendering the world easily consumable or mappable under the aegis of some kind of American rationality. So this really resonates well with his thesis that he puts forth in this text in the Gulf War when he's thinking about how one side is losing many more lives than the other. I wonder why that might be. For Baudrillard, it's surely a symptom of this greater, uh, this greater struggle that doesn't allow for the possibility of war that would imply a sort of dialectical struggle, that would imply something of a, a um, an equal response, in to some extent. But this was just such a deliberate smashing of the other of the other side that it could hardly constitute a war. So this is where the media come in, 
they performed the function of convincing people that a war did take place, that there was things that occurred on the ground, so they they uh, display the same explosions repeatedly, they display the same kind of exciting moments on repeat on CNN or Fox or whatever, in order to convince the viewers at home that there is something to be fought for, at least on the American side. On the other side, of course, there's something to be fought for. America is rolling in with troops, and you have Russia and, and coming in with tanks and all that. Thinking of, I'm thinking of another time period. Ignore that last part. But you have America coming at your doorstep. Of course, there's something to fight for on the other side, but they don't have the same kind of media machine that, the, that America does. Therefore, we must question its position within that, that very media sphere and how the media in that way are complicit in this endeavor, in this effort. So what we are confronted with then, according to Baudillard, is a hegemony, ultimately more dangerous than real apocalypse, because at least an apocalypse would imply, and we are thinking about this, oops, we are thinking about this only in terms of one side, right? Baudillard's not, doesn't spend any time in Iraq or, or is interviewing people in Iraq, and that's a problem. Like, there, there are limitations there for that very reason. Thinking about this in terms of America, um, from America's side, this is a very oppressive scheme, and it's one that operates not only to eradicate difference in almost every capacity, or where it sees a threat, but to convince those people at home that this threat is warranted and needed. Whereas in Vietnam, when when cameras started rolling, then you saw these protests, you know, come up. It seems as though the opposite, at least how Baudrillard's writing about it here. The opposite was the case with the Gulf War. So then we're coming to, or he comes to ask the Gulf War, is it really taking place? So he begins this chapter by asking, or saying, we may well ask, on the available evidence, absence of images and profusion of commentary, we could suppose an immense promotional exercise like that one which wanted advertised a brand name, G-A-R-A-P in brackets, whose product never became known pure promotion which enjoyed an immense success because it belonged to pure speculation. So this advertisement, or at least the idea of advertisements in in between media images is a phenomenon that interests Baudrillard greatly because it just attests to the kind of, not only the indifference of television itself where it's prepared to show people dying and then show advertisements for a candy wrapper, but it does also demonstrate the kind of affinity that advertisements have with this with war as it manifests itself in the media. So what, as he says, the media promote the war, the war promotes the media, and advertising competes with the war. Promotion is the most thick-skinned parasite in our culture. It would undoubtedly survive a nuclear conflict. It is our last judgment. And you could, I think this could go either way. We could agree with him and say that, yes, it, it does compete with war. It competes for uh, ad time on the televisions between... Um, uh, images of the war, but at the same time, it, it really does cooperate with it. They work as a network where, if we consider this process of globalization or the war as an instrument of this globalizing effort, then it is part of that very, you know, advanced capitalist system of exploitation to some extent that has an indubitable affinity with, with uh, advertising, with promotion. And what we are left with in all of this, at least according to Baudrillard, is not 
um, a will to power or will to knowledge, but rather a will to spectacle, where that is our total obsession with the case of both advertising and the war and the Gulf War. What we obsess over is this idea of spectacle itself and having it be reaffirmed and confirmed. Now, this is kind of odd for those people that are familiar with some of other, Baudrillard's other works, notably the one that precedes this one. Um, I don't know if it, I don't think it directly precedes it. Um, let me, before I lie to you, no, it doesn't. Um, the Ecstasy of Communication, Baudrillard makes clear that spectacle is over. So it seems odd that he's using this terminology here. However, we, we have it, so let's let's put up with it. So what this war is for him, because it we at least have established, I think, up until this point, that it's not a real war. For him, it's a war to try and maintain the idea of war or to save the idea of war. So for him, unlike earlier wars in which there were political aims either of conquest or domination, what is at stake in this one is war itself, the status, its meaning, its future. So what that means... It, it's difficult to say because it, it we can hardly consider this to be a war in the first place so it would seem odd that anyone could possibly mount the notion that this was a war in the service of the idea of maintaining war or keeping war going for its future so we have to kind of wrestle with that idea a little bit and in order to kind of solve it I'll think about I'll reiterate what I said earlier where it's not the war itself per se, but it's its connection. It's its its connection to the mediated images that bring war to its hyperreal function, to its hyperreal, um, I guess, realization. And in that way, we see war being recuperated in some sense, because, as Baudrillard makes clear in a rather provocative way, World War Three did not take place. And yet we are already beyond it, as though in the utopian space of a post-war which did not take place, and it is in this suspense created by this non-place that the present confrontations unfold and the question is posed, can a war still take place? To which the answer I think would be no. The global conflict or the uh, process of globalization by certain nations make it nearly impossible for war to take place proper. And the nuclear uh, the dropping of the first nuclear bombs on Japan, I think, was a precursor to all this, really telling the world as a mode of deterrence that any if you step out of line, there won't be the opportunity for thinking about this, the development with um, or how the events with North Korea and the United States were unfolding for um, a few a few months, where it seemed as though the president of the United States was prepared at the push of a button to eradicate the conflict to eradicate the tension in a moment, which I think is certainly within his power, not his right per se, but technically the the ability was there where the war wouldn't actually need to take place. And in fact, there wouldn't have been place for it when the resolution could be, could come about at, at the push of a button. So then can it be said that even we have a future in this in this mode to, or in this system to which Baudrillard would I think pretty clearly say no absolutely not because the future would imply some some degree of choice or autonomy whereas for us that has been taken from us under this totalizing system 
this kind of simulacral system that doesn't allow for people to break out of the boundaries with that, you know, break out of certain boundaries unless it's allowed or allotted for by the system itself. And this is a conversation that goes on really uh, in really interesting ways with like post-feminist thought and how resistance is possible in relation to feminism in current mediated spheres where it can hardly be said that um, there can be a redemptive use of the media for for uh, for feminism to occur because every single image is is essentially attached to a certain profit motive and this is especially true today if we think about you know the Nike ad with um, Kaepernick where it can hardly be said that that was a a beneficial or benevolent thing on the you know, on this you know deep down on the surface it appeared as so but Nike still has sweatshops and it how do you necessarily get out of that is is difficult and for Baudrillard who often deals with these kind of totalizing systems that is simulation or America or whatever there doesn't seem to be a lot of wiggle room so where there are sites of contestation where there is the presence of a certain degree of otherness that falls out of the control of the system, Baudrillard recognizes that America or the global authority of the time will simply annihilate it. He says, they, notably the America, cannot imagine the other, nor therefore personally make war upon it. What they make war upon is the alterity of the other, and what they want is to reduce that alterity to convert it, or failing that to annihilate it if it proves irreducible, which was the case with with Native Americans and you know the Americas, precisely because they fell outside of however Europeans might understand them, and because Europeans had very sadistic um, motivations and very sadistic ways of dealing with people, they they were very successful at at eradicating many of these nations off the face of the earth and they do that in the same way or at least the gulf war how it was taking place was with the same motivations in the effort of eradicating a sort of difference and this is even more malicious to some extent because there's all that discourse around uh war with zero casualties or the or the the idea of a clean war which was especially true thinking about the like obama administration or up till today uh, with like drone strikes where there is no possibility to respond where it is simply the act of committing violence against someone else without their ability to not only recognize what is happening but to respond to that uh, that thing and all this stands in opposition to wars it has been or the definition of it that would imply an ability to respond, an ability to react, drones and the other discursive strategies employed, or just not other discursive strategies, but discursive strategies employed, like war of zero deaths or clean war, don't allow for that realization of war as it has been traditionally understood. So it's like the war machine, as, as Deleuze describes it, where the war machine is not something that is has any affinity with war as it has manifested itself in like the 20th century per se. Rather for Deleuze, the war machine is that thing that kind of allows uh, states in a sense to come into being through sort of as a kind of apparatus of capture. But it is when the war machine 
it, it, the war machine only becomes oppressive when war occurs for the sake of war's sake for the sake of itself and that is certainly what is happening here where war is conducted not under the aegis of war itself or not under the scripter of war itself but simply by taking war in its hyper real form notably total success and total victory by destroying another killing another only when that occurs do we see this really oppressive formation occur because there is no ability to uh, to respond to react so this all presents kind of a counterintuitive uh, scenario where for Baudrillard, as we approach war in its hyper-real form, what we fall into for him is the illusion of the virtual. So what he says, the closer we approach the real time of the event, the more we fall into the illusion of the virtual. God save us from the illusion of war. Where it is that illusion of war that is, the, as I have been saying it, the most oppressive, the scariest one for Baudrillard. Now, this is difficult to kind of wrap your head around, especially if you've read some other Baudrillard texts, especially some of his later ones that follow this, illusion is something that Baudrillard celebrates to some extent. So it's odd that he uses this language here to describe an oppressive scheme or a schematic or framework, but here we we have it. He's not the most consistent, so here we have to, you know, we have to grant him a privilege that we don't normally grant other people, so he's lucky for that. Um, but he makes an interesting point about the illusion of the virtual or the illusion of war precisely because we are convinced of, by being convinced of its reality, we lose sight of the fact that it, ha it is not manifesting itself in a traditional way and therefore not in, not to say that war is ever just, but in a, I guess, more humanitarian way. So now we enter into the third chapter, the third phase where the Gulf War did not take place. So now we're thinking of it after the fact. So as he says, since the war was won in advance, we will never know what it would have been like had it existed. So this resonates well with one of his earlier theses put forth in um, Simulacra and Simulation, when he says that, you know, he says two things, America may have lost the war in Vietnam, but they won the movie in the form of Apocalypse Now. But he also says that the United States didn't need to win the war in Vietnam in the traditional way that that a nation or, or whatever might might have won a war. The real goal of the Vietnam War for Baudrillard was to enter Vietnam into the global framework. So the real threat was not communism, at least not for Baudrillard. The threat was the unmappable, deterritorialized kind of um, guerrilla warfare occurring in the North Vietnamese side. That was what, at least, what Baudrillard recognizes was not okay with the United States. So it is when Vietnam was able to consolidate a real military in the form of like a, that could be recognized nationally, that, or internationally, that the United States could leave. And then the United States could say, that's all we need. All we needed to see was that you can be placed under control in a sort of globalized network. And this is really the point of Apocalypse Now. So this will be, if you haven't seen the film, then this description or this analysis will kind of go, be lost on you perhaps. But in the film, the Americans present don't kill any Vietnamese um, 
any Viet Cong or any members of the North Vietnamese, they kill civilians, but they don't kill, at least that we see there are moments when they kind of, they're shooting into the woods, but there's no indication that they actually kill anyone. Rather, their mission throughout the whole film is to kill a rogue American deep in the jungle somewhere. And I think that that really represents the what America was trying to do in Vietnam, at least if we accept Baudrillard's hypothesis, notably to eradicate those things that fell off the grid, those people that were were simp- that we couldn't understand. And this speaks to, and this really resonates with the broader logic of this globalized domination of the world or hegemony, to be a little bit more uh, lexically prop- proper. The goal of the war in Vietnam was to make sure that there were no people in the jungle that couldn't be mapped, recorded, um, essentially graphed out in a in a in a trajectory. I actually hadn't thought about that in that way until now. No one no one steal that idea. I'm I'll probably write about that. So, however, I digress. Thinking about this war in terms of you know what it did look like from looking looking backwards, we are presented with two. Um, to, I guess, two figures. That is, we have Saddam Hussein, and then we have America. So Saddam Hussein was by no means a good person. Like, that is certainly, I think, without dispute. But that doesn't mean that they deserve, or he deserved, or his nation in any way, deserved what America mounted against them. But what Baudrillard says about this, and, and it's difficult to swallow, is that in for Saddam, Saddam, there was a recognition of a degree of symbolic exchange. Now, what does that mean? Personally, in this context, I have a lot of trouble understanding, but I, I can try to uh, what I, well, I provide what I think about it. So for Baudrillard, what he says is that the Americans take no account of these primitive subtleties. They have much to learn about symbolic exchange. So what are these subtleties? He says, for the Americans, bargaining is cheap, whereas for the others, it is a matter of honor mutual, personal recognition, linguistic strategy, language exists, it must be honored, and respect for time. Altercation demands a rhythm. It is the price of their being another. So I think that it's not so much that these uh, Saddam Hussein and what Baudrillard characterizes as as a group of people that share an affinity with symbolic exchange. This isn't like um, an anomaly. And this is one of the trickier things about Baudrillard is the way that he's framing it here, it makes it seem as though they tapped into some kind of secret truth of the universe. Whereas I think what is really going on is Baudrillard is saying that, no, it's actually the other way around. Something has happened in the American moment that has driven it away from the from the world, right? So America satellized itself, essentially driven it into orbit where it can just look and down on onto the onto the world the kind of movement of the archimedean point so these old institutional formations that Baudrillard recognizes indicative of hussein's army or armies or, or iraq was um more in line with the classical ideas of war so the idea that altercation demands a rhythm this is something that america and the way that it mounted this war what we what we're just calling this war has no notion of. Instead, it's all about doing it quickly. Logic of zero deaths. Um, 
not even being physically present in many cases with stealth bombers and drone strikes. But there is another way we can think about this uh, term symbolic exchange, where the response by some nations against the terrorist rationalization of the globalized or globalizing efforts of America are not means by which these people hope to attain a certain degree of power, but rather it is many of their uh, strategies, and this comes out in often terroristic forms, and Baudrillard writes about this much more in like fatal strategies and and, um, in the shadow of the silent majorities, and how they ultimately... Uh, the action of actions of uh, terrorists, like with the Botter Group, Meinhof and and Botter, or uh, well, the Botter Gang, and um, the uh, I, IRA, Irish, the the Irish rebels, um, how the how these people, you know, work into the hands of this system more than they think. However, I think that we can think about these responses or these kinds of global responses to globalization as certainly necessary, but not as an attempt by people to gain power, but rather an attempt by people to say no to power in some way, to say no to hegemony, to say no to the satellization of the world through the, you know, mass-mediated spectacular illusory effects of these hyper-real institutional formations, like in the case of war, where it's a demand to slow down, to bring the world back a few notches. Now, ultimately, Baudrillard does recognize this, and he considers this, but he says that, no, we can't slow down, We're, we're screwed, all we're doing and all we can do is just hope that the system will crash, and we that's all we can really do. But that does not mean that these efforts aren't totally futile, at least for me. But eh, here we have it. You make up your own mind. So then he presents a rather, what I think to be an, an interesting insight, where he says, This kind of preventative, deterrent, and punitive war is a warning to everyone not to take extreme measures and inflict upon themselves what they inflict on others, the missionary complex, the rule of the game that says everyone must remain within the limits of their power, and not make war by any means whatever. So then, he continues, just as wealth is no longer measured by the ostentation of wealth, but by the secret circulation of speculative capital, so war is not measured by being waged, but by its speculative unfolding in an abstract, electronic, and informational space, the same space in which capital moves. So here we're seeing another affinity with that idea where he's bringing up that idea about advertising and um, and war again. And then he makes an interesting analogy to, or response, I guess, or homage to Marshall McLuhan, where he says that only TV functions as a medium without a message, giving at last the pure image of television. Now this is a consequence of the war as it is depicted in the, on the media, because it doesn't show anything for Baudrillard. In fact, it doesn't. It because it wasn't a war conducted in the traditional sense. It therefore more closely resembles false advertising, which, as we know, we shouldn't pay attention to. But because it is on the television anyway, Baudrillard says that sure, we are presented here with the medium, that being television. 
but without a message, right? This is the pure form of the medium. So we see this as being almost the next step to Marshall McLuhan's um, famous, you know, platitude, the medium is the message, right? Now there's, we don't even need a message. It's just the medium. That, that is all. That is all we have. And one way that, that he, he elaborates this, and I think it's rather funny, even though it's depressing, he says that a simple calculation shows that of the 500,000 American soldiers, soldiers involved during the seven months of operations in the Gulf, three times as many would have died from road accidents alone had they stayed in civilian life. Should we consider multiplying clean wars in order to reduce the murderous death toll in peacetime? So again, we have to make clear that he's really just speaking about one side here, and this does communicate the imperialistic, I guess, um, the imperialistic quality of this brand of war, because we see on the other side 100,000 dead Iraqis, civilians and military personnel, all people that don't, didn't, absolutely did not deserve this. And here we have, on the American side, very few deaths. In fact, more people would have died had they stayed at home, at least statistically, according to Baudrillard. So this is just one reason I think that there is this move by these kind of globalized efforts, or these moves toward ultimate globalization and this sort of neo-imperialism because of its uh, ability to eradicate um, resistance, to eradicate um, contradiction to eradicate conflict in some way, but at what cost? Of course, people are going to they have to eradicate otherness and eradicate difference for that to occur. And these, it's not as though these people are, would have actually posed any threat to the first place. This really reveals the racist tendencies behind um, these kind of imperialistic efforts. And then he says of this, strangely, a war without victims does not seem like a real war but rather the prefiguration of, ex of an experimental blank war, or a war even more inhuman because it is without human losses. Again, only on one side. We have to keep qualifying that because it seems as though he's, he forgets it. And I don't know, I'm not in his head. I don't know what, the, what he was thinking here. And approaching the end here, uh, Baudrillard makes, says something... That I, that I think is interesting, and he really calls attention to, um, oh God, the separation of church and state. Oh my God, what is that word? Uh, secular, secular state. He really calls attention to our supposed liberalism, or supposed, um, our secularism, because we use this to position ourselves against fundamentalists against traditionalists and this is certainly this certainly goes on today with these clowns like Bill Maher you know people who condemn um fucking uh, Joe Rogan or any of those clowns that condemn religion in almost every capacity in favor of these you know enlightened Lockean type um liberal values that have some kind of affinity with science and rationality and the Enlightenment. Whereas for Baudrillard, he says that consensual traditionalism, that of the Enlightenment, the rights of man, the left in power, the repentant intellectual and sentimental humanism is every bit as fierce as that of any tribal religion or primitive society. Not to say that Iraq 
is either of those things. But he makes an interesting claim, and I think that it's important to consider this because we we don't want to imbue onto Baudrillard a kind of um, superior position where he feels like he's floating above everyone, throwing down these criticisms of um, technological society in favor of some kind of you know return to the old values or something like that. Rather, I think that he views this as really being a consequence, this phenomenon as being a consequence of these values. So in that way, he's very much in tune with like Adorno and some other, the other Frankfurt School thinkers, where perhaps he's not as pessimistic as Adorno, or he's more, depends which book you read, but he's really considering all of this in terms of that logic, that oppressive logic of the enlightenment that, you know, I bring up and I'm quite passionate about because it's something that I I confront almost daily in the rhetoric that I not only encounter on the internet, but in, you know, my daily life. Like, people love this idea of rationality and truth and science and objectivity. Really scary ideas. But they are ideas that work very well with the oppressive modes of simulation that Baudrillard writes about. So in that way, I think we can see him as certainly posing a challenge to that as well. So to kind of round this off, Baudrillard leaves us with a good... um, a good paragraph. He says that our wars have thus less to do with the confrontation of warriors than with the domestication of the refractory forces on the planet, those uncontrollable elements, as the police would say, to which belong not only Islam in its entirety, but wild ethnic groups, minority languages, etc. All that is singular and irreducible must be reduced and absorbed. This is the law of the democracy and the new world order. In this sense, the Iran-Iraq war was a successful first phase. Iraq served to liquidate the most radical form of the anti-Western challenge, even though it never defeated it. And then finally, the last words of this book, or this pamphlet, whatever you call it, are, as a result, the more the hegemony of the global consensus is reinforced, the greater the risk or the chances of its collapse. So this is an idea I won't labor on too much now, uh, the idea of a system collapsing on itself, or rather consuming itself in a cannibalistic fashion, which is an idea that comes up in really one of its last texts, Carnival and Cannibal, um, which where I'll expound upon this more, but there are many other books to get to before that. I'm hoping next time I'll do uh, probably The Transparency of Evil, but I gotta find a copy of it. I read it, I only read it out of the library, so I don't know, I don't have a version of it here with me. So I'll get my hands on that. But for those that listen this far, thank you. And I hope that, you know, you're able to get something from this. It's a tricky read, and it's problematic. There's no denying that. Uh, But there are some golden nuggets in here as well. And I'd certainly be curious as to what other people think about it. Because it's not easy, and there are different ways to interpret it, surely. But on that note, 